So, for the second half of the show, we are going to be talking about uh, an anime. Uh, a classic anime, at this point, I think, called Mushishi. So, a couple things about it. Uh, it was written by Yuki Uru... Sorry, Uru Shibata, uh, who is a female mangaka, which is kind of rare. Uh, and I... Th- think probably contributed to it being good (laughs) um it's very different from most anime uh it's a supernatural fantasy but it's one that doesn't have like fights with like energy beams and stuff like that um and uh unlike most anime it doesn't have like a like a single story arc like a single continuous story it's uh very episodic like more like an american tv show with uh like a few like maybe two uh two part episodes. I think there might actually only be one even. Mm-hmm. Um so there's going to be spoilers here, uh but the show is uh like over 5 years old and even if you know some of the plot details, I promise that it will not diminish your enjoyment of it. So um you know, just if you hear the story of the episode uh, it's still worth watching the episode. It's a very good show. Um, yeah. yeah, it's it's a it's a popular um, show among people who wouldn't consider themselves anime fans. Um, it's been on a couple of the big streaming platforms. I think it was on Netflix for a while. Um, but <laughs> unlike many anime, I think this has to do with the writer being both extremely competent and skilled at episodic storytelling. Uh, but also, she's generally not a creepy man-child otaku who uh, never gets out of his room or studio and spends a lo- way too much time uh, sexualizing high schoolers. Um, instead, she seems to be a normal adult who has a life and goes outside. Um, and I think that uh, <laughs> kind of reflects in the popularity of her series. Uh, uh, people can relate to... It instead of the usual crappy fan service over sexualization um, and like extremely self referential otaku culture references. Um, and even in a lot of cases, uh, the show really doesn't uh, rely on any sort of historical or cultural references um, for the plot, besides just kind of history, historical period and place being the backdrop for the show. It's set in Japan in, like, the 1800s, but it could basically take place anywhere at any time. Yeah, it's supposed um, to be a fictional period of Japanese history between the Edo period and the uh, Meiji Restoration. Because they have elements of both isolationist feudal Japan and uh, internationalist uh, industrial Japan. Yeah. Um I was kind of, that kind of brings up a point. Maybe you can think of an example from the show, but one other thing that kind of like stood out to me when I was thinking about Mushishi was that, um, you know, it's set in a particular his- historical time that's really popular for a lot of uh, series and stories to be set in, um, big transitional period um, in Japanese history. But in the show itself, there's almost a complete lack of anything having to do whatsoever with any government or organized religion or really anybody yeah. uh, more important than a peasant or a doctor. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a really neat theme. It reminds me a lot of works from Ursula Le Guin, particularly her later Earthsea novels and Always Coming Home, where um, the story is mostly just about ordinary people um, living their lives and just kind of the everyday uh, struggles they experience, but almost um, never have anything having anything to do with government. It's sort of a an everyday peaceful anarchy where people are just kind of the biggest uh, struggle people have to deal with is like problems in their family, health, um, or like the village you know, leader farming, uh, just sort of these normal people or like problems. The village leader. Yeah, having you know little village politics, but um, nothing whatsoever to do with the state or religion or um, any kind of like basically anything historical. Um, yeah. Even in terms of, like, uh, how modern everything is, like, the most modern thing really is, like, Ginko and, the way, like, the way he dresses, and then, like, maybe uh, his friend Adashino, 
who, uh, you know, he wears, like, a monocle, but he still has, like, a kimono on, and, like, you know, basically everyone else in the series uh, wears a kimono and is just uh, living, like, a traditional Japanese life. It's in a very rural setting, so nearly everybody mm-hmm. is, like, a farmer or a fisher person or a hunter or something like that. Um, you never see anything about any warlords or any battles or any fights. Yeah. It kind of reflects this, like, um, alternative yeah. reading of history where it's, uh, you know, uh, stories of common people's ordinary lives where, uh, you know, if you had a lick of sense about you, um, you knew that getting involved with history was seen as a very bad idea. You tend to die a lot when you do that. And so kind of uh, living your life in the mountains or in your village without ever getting mixed up with any of that. Like, all that stuff could be... Yeah, it's like a history of non-state peoples. All that stuff could be going on somewhere, but uh, sensible people keep their nose out of that business. Yeah, I... um. I feel like that's that's actually a, a huge theme in studies of things like folklore, which is to say that it's an alternative to the state histories and state legends and everything. Yeah, um, and you could really kind of see um, like the the work of the Mushishi as like being a folk healer, or a folk doctor, kind of traveling mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. and curing diseases which are basically supernatural in origin to. The ordinary person, but to the Mushishi, have like a natural um, kind of biological cause. Right, right. Yeah. So if I had to summarize like what the series was, uh, basically uh, the main character Ginko, uh, he's a an eco ghostbuster with a curse, uh, and his his backpack is even big and boxy and sort of resembles a proton pack. In fact, I'm just gonna say that this is the true version of Ghostbusters, and the American one is a ripoff. Um, and also, he's constantly smoking cigarillos, which is really cool. <laughs> smoking doinks. Big old doinks. <laughs> Big mushy doinks. <laughs> okay, yeah, so I've got a pretty. I found a really good. Uh, just one of the papers I was looking at had a really nice uh, overall summary for the show or introduction to it. Yeah. So basically, the overview of Mushishi. I'm taking this from the paper called Mushishi by Mio Bryce and Jason Davis, which is kind of a uh, it's in the Journal of Environmental Humanities, Volume 2, Number 3, in 2015, if anybody's curious. Um, they describe the show as uh, Mushishi, an episodic anime television series directed by Hiroshi Nagahama and adapted from the manga series by Yuki Urushibara, explores the ecological relationship between humans and mushi, literally insect, uh, supernatural life forms whose reliance on humans as hosts impacts human life by mimicking a variety of biological phenomena ranging from swamps to microbes. Invisible to most humans, mushi are diagnosed as cohabiting with human communities by a mushi-shi, literally an insect master, a gifted seer of mushi who is able to eradicate their harmful varieties. Set in Japan during the 1800s, the series depicts the relationship of mushi to humans against the landscape of Japan's pre-modern forests. Today, mushi refers to bugs and insects. However, in mushishi, the more complex kanji is used for mushi, which indicates that they are not actual insects, but mythic, ubiquitous, and potentially monstrous life forms. Resembling actual insects, microbes, and protozoa, they are generally extremely small, yet diverse, elusive, and highly adaptable. Mushi introduced in the anime are largely invisible, shapeless, or shape-shifting, and invade, impact, and interact with humans in varied ways. In the first episode of the anime series, Ginkgo, um, the only recurring character explains to a boy the genealogic filiation humans have with the mysterious processions of plankton-like creatures he's been seeing by using his hand as an analogy. He says, let's, see, let's say these four fingers represent animal life, and your thumb is plant life. Pointing to the tip of his middle finger, Ginkgo continues, humans are here at the point furthest from your heart. The farther you go down on your palm from there, the lower the life forms become. As you continue to go lower, around your wrist, your blood vessels combine into one. Fungi and other uh, microorganisms will be here. Once you come to that point, it becomes difficult to distinguish between plant and animal life. Yet there is life still past that point. Ginkgo runs his thumb up along his arm, past his shoulder, stopping near his heart. And the life that is around here is called mushi, or green matter. Um, so it's a really interesting metaphor of like kind of a supernatural 
um, organism, but connected in basically what's a, a phylogenetic tree. So Mushi are sort of seen as the, um, the precursors to all life, sort of part of life, but also outside of it. Yeah, and I think part of the mythology in the series is that the Mushi are connected somehow to the, the river of light, which is sort of a which is sort of like a giver of, of life that um, is, is really important to ecology uh, because there's like several episodes in this series that deal with, um, I can't remember what it's called, but it's like a, basically a point where the, the river of light is like extremely strong and kind of wells out of the ground and leads to like really like fecund uh, ecologies, uh, especially like around mountains and stuff. And they're usually guarded by like a mountain lord, which is like kind of a Shinto thing. Hmm. Yeah. Um, the river of light in Mushishi is basically the force. Yeah, I, I have a um, a full episode summary. I wanted, I did want to talk about uh, one episode in particular um, that I thought was uh, especially good and uh, warrants like a full summary. Uh, Reed, can you mute? Uh, while I read this real quick. Thanks. Um, okay, so uh, this is uh, season one, episode six. It's called uh, Those Who Inhale the Dew. And uh, so in this episode, uh, Ginkgo travels to an island accessible only one day per month due to the tides, uh, where there's a rumor uh, of a great healer that lives there. So the story centers around the descendants of the first family to reach the island. Uh, one member of each generation of the family becomes uh, what's called the living god and has the power to heal others. And uh, the family has sort of created a cult around this like living god uh, character who like they, I mean they have real powers. It's not like they just made it up, but uh, you know they made it into like a whole like religious thing. Um, to essentially like control the others on the island. So um, the patriarchs of the family uh, seem to be using like their least favorite child for the purpose uh, because uh, basically what happens is every day at sunset, uh, the living god ages rapidly and dies and then returns to life the next day and in, in this process uh, heals others around them. Um, so the living god in this story is uh, a little girl named Akoya. Akoya, I, I can't remember if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but anyway, uh, so uh, she has a friend from her childhood named Nagi, who's another one of the main characters of this episode, and uh, Ginko finds out from Nagi that uh, there are uh, there are many others affected with the syndrome. Um, and they're kept isolated on the other side of the island by the patriarchs. Uh, but they they tell others that uh, they're, like, devout worshippers of the living god. And so they have, like, you know, some degree of the, the living god power or whatever. And um, their families uh, believe that they've, like, achieved freedom from pain and suffering. Which is, like, I think it's, like, an Eastern religion trope. Sort of, like... Uh, you know, an escape from the cycle of reincarnation sort of thing. Uh, but through the course of uh, Ginko's investigation, he finds that uh, the living god power is a parasitic infection from a mushi uh, that inhabits someone's body. And um, it, uh, you know, is born, uh, lives, and, and then uh, gives birth to an offspring and dies in just 24 hours. Uh, and so what's happening is basically the living god is uh, sinking to the Mushi's life cycle. And so she is, uh, you know, being reborn, living and dying every day. Um, so uh, Ginko figures out a cure uh, and pe pulls, a, uh, pulls the parasite out of, uh, uh, what's her name? Fuck. Uh, Akoya. Um Pulls, pulls the parasite Mushi out of Akoya. Uh, so when Sunset comes after he cures her, uh, she becomes very anxious because uh, she's spent like most of her life 
or you know most of her like self-aware life because i think they gave her the parasite when she was like you know seven or eight and she's probably like you know preteen now or whatever um so most of her like awareness is um created around this life cycle of being born and living and dying every single day um so she becomes really anxious because uh you know every night she knows that she's going to die and heal a bunch of people and then be reborn the next day which is like the ultimate uh like degree of certainty that you can have with life like she had no fear of mortality whatsoever because she knew that she would come back and she had no fear that her life would be meaningless because she knew she knew that she would just heal everyone around her but you know with uh being cured now uh she's a normal mortal and uh she doesn't have that certainty of you know curing people every day and that being her life's purpose uh so she just like experiences this massive existential crisis um which is probably the scariest thing you could experience i think uh so ginkgo suggests that the uh the reason behind this is that uh this this theory that i've heard before as well uh that all all living creatures all animals uh with hearts all all creatures with hearts rather uh, share the same number of heartbeats and just live at different rates. So, like, uh, you know, turtles' hearts beat slower and uh, mice' hearts beat faster, uh, but they have the same number of heartbeats over their total lifetime. Um, uh, and, and that gives them a different frame of reference for time. So, like, we normally think of a short life as a tragedy, but for, uh, for the living God, uh, long life is a horror. Um, so they investigate further and discover that the source of the Mushi is a flower that grows inside a cave accessible only during the week the tide has receded around the island. So, um, the whole thing about the island being inaccessible, um, you know, part of that is there's this special cave that you can only get to during like one day or yeah, one day of the year or something like that. I don't know. Um, anyway, so, uh, Ginko and Nagi go to destroy the flowers, uh, to cure the infection. Um, and uh, Okoya uh, tells some of the townspeople about the flower and the secret behind the living god and, and asks them to help her save Nagi, who she, who she thinks is in trouble from uh, her father and the other patriarchs of the family. Um, so her father follows Ginko and Nagi to the cave uh, with you know, a couple of his goons to kill them, uh, to you know, cover up the truth. And... Uh, so the villagers are walking up to the cave with Akoya, uh, just as uh, the patriarch is stashing one of those flowers in a zukata uh, to you know turn someone else into the living god if if Akoya didn't work out, or turn her back um, if they could, um, and they basically just murder his ass, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, so uh, Ginko and Nagi find Akoya over uh, her father's body, just as. Uh, she has taken out the flower from his kimono, or his yukata, sorry, and uh, and smelled it to turn him back into the living god. Um, and this time the parasite burrows uh, so deep that she cannot be cured anymore. Um, and it's, you know, basically because of the whole existential crisis thing, uh, which I think is, is a really interesting uh, character uh, motivation. Um, so Ginko, because they were fucking around in the cave the whole time, uh, misses his chance to leave the island. Uh, so he's stuck there for another month. Uh, so he cures everyone on the island that has uh, the the Mushi infection. Uh, but many of them uh, went back to the cave to smell the flower again. And they said probably more would in the future. Um, and Nagi, whose life purpose thus far has been to save his friend Akoya and figure out what the mystery was, you know, uh, has no idea what lies ahead of him. Uh, so Ginko suggests ways to improve life on the island and says that uh, no matter what happens, he has many years ahead of him to figure out like what he's going to do with himself, which is, I think is really cool because it's kind of the, uh, the answer to that existential crisis that Akoya never got to hear before she uh, just like gave up and went back to uh, having a parasitic infection. Um, 
So I, I think this is a 10 out of 10 episode, um, and it's pretty early in the show, so I thought a full summary would be good. Um, and in a way, it, it reminds me of, of a Futurama episode where uh, Fry eats like a toilet sandwich and gets infected with parasites who make him a perfect genius Superman. Um, and in that, he doesn't he doesn't stay infected for the continuity of the show because he's a main character. But uh, Leela points out correctly that he's probably better off with parasites. Um, so uh, in this case, I I think it's not quite as clear cut whether it's better to have parasites or not. I don't know what you guys think. Personally, I love having parasites. They help me perform better under capitalism, and um, often I feel out of body, which is a, a relief and a mercy. Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, parasites are really the source of innovation. Okay. Um, let's see. I didn't really organize uh, the rest of it, so I just have, like, random show notes. Um, so I don't know if there's anything you want to talk about specifically, Reed. Um... Yeah, I mean, I just think that episode in particular is a really great example. Um, it's just, like, fantastic story writing. It's like an existential novel in a 30-minute yeah. show about, um, you know, a guy wandering yeah. around curing diseases. Uh, and it's basically every episode is like that in some way, which is why people like this show so much. You can put on any episode at any random point and get something like that out of it. Yeah, there are so many ethical conflicts in this show. Uh, which is, I think, part of what it makes it really good. Um, there's there's one episode uh, that I have here that's uh, pretty strongly related to Minamata disease. Uh, it's uh, season one, episode ten, uh, the white which lives within the inkstone. Um, and the basic story of that one is uh, this woman. Uh, she's the daughter of a of a man who makes inkstones. Which, uh, if you don't know anything about about that uh in uh in japan they have a special type of ink called uh sumi which is like a, a block and you you rub it onto an ink stone uh which has like a little puddle of water in it and uh it it dissolves into the water and you use that to write or to paint and um so this woman is trying to carry on her father's legacy of being like a master inkstone uh maker and so she tries for a long time uh, to make an inkstone as good as something that he did, and uh, she's unsuccessful at first. And then um, she finds this like really beautiful stone uh, and gets like really into uh, making an inkstone out of that uh, piece of stone that she found. Uh, but as it turns out, the stone is actually uh, a mushi. Uh, that is uh, essentially like um, it's like a cloud mushi and it normally if I remember correctly it normally like uh, sucks moisture out of the air uh, but if it doesn't have any moisture to suck out of the air then it becomes dormant and eventually turns into a stone and uh, so she found the stone form of it and then carved it into this ink stone and so when you uh, put water onto it and then rub it um the mushi dissolve into the water and like uh suck it out of there but then also like get released into the air and uh people uh are able to like inhale it and and uh get some sort of disease from it uh so you know basically the like to rephrase the story uh someone makes and sells a product that kills people and then has to decide has to decide whether to continue to sell the product or to fix the problem mm. uh, mm-hmm. behind you know what like the problem that the product caused rather. Um, and so in in this story, uh, Adashino, uh, Ginko's friend, who I think I mentioned earlier, um, he's he's like a guy who buys and sells um, like artifacts that are related to Mushi. And so he buys this inkstone, but, uh, like a child finds it, like sneaks into it, like a couple of kids, like sneak into his, uh, his warehouse and, uh, play with the inkstone and, and fall ill. And so he and the, uh, woman who made the inkstone originally are both like trying to, uh, track it down and, and fix the problem. And, 
you know, prevent anyone from anyone further from dying from it, uh, which is obviously the correct choice as opposed to what Minamata or what uh, Chiso Corporation did, which is uh, as far from from that as possible. Should have made more ink stones. Mm-hmm. Should have profit off it while the iron's hot. <laughs> <laughs> there is a quote um, that I have here that um, I, I really like um, that maybe we can talk about. It's uh, from from the origin story of Ginkgo. And uh, the quote is from uh, the narrator to the story. Uh, and I won't, I, I won't spoil who she is in relation to the rest of it. But uh, she says... Uh, you must not let your vision be clouded by fear and anger. There are times when we must simply accept that all things serve a larger purpose. The cycle of life extends beyond what we can see and connects us all in unexpected ways. Therefore, whenever possible, the wise Mushi Master chooses understanding over extermination. And I think that's kind of like a uh, like a repeated trope in the series where, uh, you know, even if uh, Mushi is doing something very deadly. Uh, Ginkgo tries to solve the problem without just, like, killing everything. Yeah, and it's interesting, too. You kind of get the impression... uh, The story follows Ginkgo, but there's only a handful of episodes that are actually about Ginkgo. Usually he's just kind of there, and the story is about other people. Yeah. But um, you do get the impression with the episodes focused on Ginkgo and other Mushishi that um, maybe the other Mushishi don't necessarily uh, have the same philosophy as Ginkgo and his teacher. A lot of them are kind of quacks. Um, like, right. there's another episode yeah. about Ginkgo, uh, season two, episode 11, called Cushion of Grass. It's also a Ginkgo backstory episode. Um, of when he's a kid and the episode opens on him kind of like collapsed in a forest um, and a a local Mushishi finds him and nurses him back to health um, and he finds out that Ginkgo has been just traveling around throughout the country um, working for various Mushishi because he has kind of a it's after he has his like affliction that attracts Mushi to him so that's basically Ginkgo's deal. Is he's he's cursed to attract Mushi to him, and he also has one parasitically uh, inhabiting an empty eye socket of his. But um, he's been as a kid, he traveled the country um, and was employed by various Mushishi to basically cause problems. He would attract Mushi to an area, um, which then that uh, kind of unscrupulous Mushishi would then cure, um, and then they'd. But then if he stuck around too long, disasters would tend to happen and they'd kick him out and he'd have to go find a new place to stay. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, maybe Ginkgo and his teacher have that philosophy, but there's also a lot of uh, quacks out there um, who um, don't take that approach and are more of the, like, I'm going to make uh, make my buck and kill these bugs and do whatever I got to do. Yeah, I would say the author definitely has that philosophy, but she wrote in a bunch of characters that have the normal, uh, modern human philosophy of just kill everything and worry about it later. Yeah, it seems like it. Yeah, so that episode was really good because um, the the other Mushi Master, you know, tries to use the strategy of uh, let's just kill whatever the problem is, and it ended up horrifically backfiring, uh, which is uh, very reflective of reality. Where <laughs> you know we solve problems in like agriculture and you know general society of uh, let's just kill whatever it is, and it it backfires, uh, like causing disease resistant or uh, antibiotic uh, resistant bacteria or pesticide-resistant weeds, or what what have you. Um, and I think it's, uh, you know, there's nowhere to go with that except the uh, Ginkgo uh, slash Yui, uh, Nui philosophy of everything serves its purpose and we have to coexist with everything, even if they are uh, personally inconvenient for us. I think another uh, good example of this is uh, 
episode five of season one, uh, the traveling swamp, uh, where there's uh, there's a girl uh, named uh, I think it's Eo. I think that's how you'd pronounce it. There, I I, I watched the dub <laughs> this time around, so I was, they probably said I O or something. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so she was like offered as a sacrifice by her village to a swamp, nice, nice. Uh, as part of like you know whatever uh, primitive uh, love to polytheistic religion. Be sacrificed by my village, yeah, to the yeah. swamp. <laughs> um, so uh, it turned out that the swamp was a mushi that travels underground. Uh, <laughs> so it's like a, a like a literal traveling swamp. Um, and, uh, the Mushi was, like, sort of intelligent and could, like, had, like, this weird, like, telepathic communication with Eo. Um, and so it, it kept her alive and, uh, made her its traveling companion. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so, like, Ginkgo, uh, meets Eo and the, the swamp as it's, like, nearing this ocean, uh, nearby. Uh, and, uh... So as it turns out, the swamp was like traveling to the ocean in order to to die. So it knew it knew it was like near the end of its life, or decided to make it the end of its life, um, mm-hmm. and and goes into the ocean. And um, when it reaches the ocean, you know it, it's basically like a a big ass swamp dumping itself into the ocean. So there's all these like nutrients and stuff that uh, feed all of the sea life around. And so uh, there's like this big burst of life. Uh, the fishers of the area are catching like huge amounts of fish and everything. Um, and uh, then uh, Ginkgo notices like at the very end of the episode that even though the swamp's body died, um, there were also new swamps that were left behind by it. So um you know, it died, but it was replaced by its offspring and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of like making a central point of like the life cycle of, uh, of ecosystems of, you know, just because an individual dies doesn't mean, uh, it's gone forever. It's, it lives on in its successors. Yeah. That's, that's, a uh... yeah. Uh, sorry. Nothing to contribute. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, sorry, I'm like, my memory's shit right now. I don't remember whether we already connected it to the Minamata disease, the show. Well, uh, it's it seems like it's one of those things where there are vectors, but there's also a heavily ecological aspect to it. Um, Reed, yeah. you're kind of the expert, I think on this series and, and also on the, and also on what we talked about already. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, uh, I think we have, we've connected it pretty well to, um, like an environmental theory of disease. I think that's a really important connection to make, um, in this, in the show itself. Um, and I think, yeah, the the theme the themes of Mushishi are just like really fucking fecund and ecological as hell. Like, not only is it about you know uh, understanding that ecological problems are the result of social problems. Um, yeah. It's also about um, kind of understanding that yeah. ecologies are self-organizing and tend to kind of. Be, be resilient to whatever bullshit humans throw at them you know in in some cases uh like uh that same backstory episode of ginkgo's i was talking about he ends up accidentally um killing the mountain lord like the sort of the keystone mushi of the mountain he's visiting on accident um and he he uh basically has a has a crazy acid trip where he goes down to the river of light and returns its uh, soul to to the root of all life itself um, and when he comes back he you know he, he when he's down there he considers throwing himself into the river of light too killing himself basically because um, he doesn't feel like there's a place for him in the world and that he's just fucked up so irrevocably that there's no going back um, 
And so when he, he, he um, but the uh, sort of the Mushi down there end up sending him back. And when he talks to the adult Mushi master um, who he's been staying with, he says uh, basically like, the mountain lords and all these mushi that we see are the flowers, but what you saw down there was the roots. So you can end up killing the keystone species and fucking up uh, this whole ecosystem, and these mountains are going to decline for many years, maybe for the rest of our lifetimes, but eventually um, they're going to be back, uh, whether we like it or not. They're, it's could Because as long as the root is still under there, that there's still life uh, flowing underneath the land, um, the scars that we make are only temporary. It's like a really good lesson. It, uh, he's also pointing out at the same time that like for Ginkgo, you know, this human who feels um, unwelcome in the world, he says, you know, you went down there and um, they sent you back and that's proof that there's no place in this entire world that you don't belong um, because basically, you know, you gave yourself over to death <laughs> um, or eternal life or whatever you want to call it. Um, and it sent you back, so it says it's saying that despite what all the humans may think, you do belong here, and that um, you can make mistakes while you're alive, but uh, eventually, you know, life uh, life finds a way, or whatever. Life will uh, time. Yeah, the thing about um, whatever whatever fucking cliches I've got in there. The thing about uh, the mushi being the flowers and the river of light being the the roots or whatever. Um, makes it seem like uh it's almost like a a metaphor for like or not maybe not a metaphor but it's very similar to fungus in that um like mushrooms that you see in the forest are just the fruit of like an entire underground network of fungus and uh mycorrhizal networks which are like uh like little filaments of fungus that extend between trees in a forest uh, have been found to be like extremely important for the growth and maintenance of forests, uh, like somewhat recently, uh, which is you know something that has been totally invisible to us uh, up until then. Man, I had something else that I can't remember what it was. <laughs> Damn. Um, I had a I had a little bit of a meta, like anime analysis note. I could okay. talk about a little bit, and that's kind of like the genre of mushishi. Yeah, for like a lot of uh, you know, like Western audience, it seems like a pretty unique show. Like, there's not much else out there that's being marketed to us um, that resembles besides Mushishi. the Ghostbusters cartoon. That's actually uh, can be considered besides the Ghostbusters cartoon. <laughs> yeah, the <laughs> Ghostbusters cartoon is anime, and it's actually just a ripoff of Mushishi. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's like it's like a weird bad Disney dub from back in the '80s. Yeah, <laughs> um, but apart from Ghostbusters. Um, and Steven Universe, uh, there's nothing else. Um, but, uh, in, in the broader kind of body of work of anime, um, sub-genres and so on, um, Mushishi fits kind of in this genre called Iyashike. Um, basically, the meaning of Iyashike is healing. Um, and this is in contrast to other genres like Shonen and, uh, you know, Seinen, giant robot, all that kind of stuff. Yashike um, uh, series and works are typically like episodic without an overarching plot and they have heavy emphasis on kind of atmospheric tones. Um, usually um, focuses on um, mundane situations and move at a slow and calming pace which in Mushishi is literally just like the speed that actual characters move at is very slow and deliberate um, it's very calming to watch just animation of somebody's hand doing something in Mushishi um, and um, often uh, the sort of mundane setting of Iyashike, um shows uh, comes with a bit of a uh, feeling of melancholy. Um, not every show is like that, but Mushishi is definitely on the melancholy side, the sense of like peacefulness, but also of things kind of inevitably yeah. changing and passing away. Um, so I, sort of the, the spectrum of Iyashike works can go from something like Mushishi, which is quite dark um, 
in its tone to a popular kind of like slice of life show like K-On! where it's just cute girls doing cute things and you feel good after you watch it. Um, yeah, we didn't talk about any of the like really disturbing <laughs> nothing episodes. Really there's like uh, there's one where like a like a fungus like uh, sneaks into a woman's womb and takes the place of her baby, and basically like uh, manipulates her into taking care of them until they can like release a bunch of spores and kill everyone. Yeah, Mushishi definitely toes the line of, like, dark. And then there's uh, the, the other one that's, like, really extra fucked up that I won't spoil at all. <laughs> I think you probably know which one I mean. <laughs> uh, I think so. Yeah, even even with the fucked up episodes of Mushishi, you kind of come away feeling disturbed but soothed in a sense of, like, oh, yeah, that's how life is, huh? Sometimes shit just happens. Yeah, um, yeah. And, like, uh, like, I mean, on top of the animation being outstanding... The, the music is really, really good. Um, another one of those tropes that it, that it avoids that, you know, annoy most people that don't watch anime is, like, the the J-Rock theme song. It doesn't have that. It has... It, it uses, like, Western music, which, I mean, you could say that's good or bad based on, like, your standpoint there, but uh, I think both of the, so- the songs they picked are really good. Yeah, um... And the, most of the soundtrack is just sort of strange bells and wind chimes. And yeah. uh, one thing you notice when you're watching the show is there will just be, like, minutes and yeah. minutes of no sound or music or anything, just, like, kind of a couple of, like, environmental sound effects, and the rest is just quiet. You're like, are my speakers on? I don't know. Yeah, so, or maybe just, like, a, like a um, bell hit, you know. Uh, there's a really great um, kind of, like, a uh, common theme to all the Iyashke genre shows. Um, I don't know if you guys have talked about this on here before, being fucking weebs and whatnot, um, but uh, it's the uh, the theme of mono no aware. It's a Japanese aesthetic that can aesthetic that can be translated as sort of the sensitivity or the pathos of things. It's a melancholy kind of feeling. It's described as a somewhat bittersweet appreciation of the beauty found in life with the knowledge that everything in it is ephemeral. More specifically, it can be invoked by bringing up the transience of an object or an experience and then expressing appreciation for the topic in spite of or often because of that transience. Um, yeah, that rules. That's that's like a just very, very old school like Japanese literary theme. Um, goes back to kind of like influence of animism and zen buddhism on japanese literature um that reminds me of of uh, another thing that's sort of similar uh wabi sabi which is like finding beauty and imperfection yeah that's 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 totally part of the exact same like artistic and literary movement that uh aware came out of um and mushishi takes the mono no aware and kind of turns it up to 11 that's really like the vibe that this show uh, really gets its bread and butter from. Um, there's other Iyashike that don't play on it so heavily, um, but even the ones that are less dark than Mushishi still do it. You know, if it's like like in K-On, just the sense of like, oh, we have this great, you know, just like pleasant, normal high school friendship, and but we're all kind of living it out with the sense that, oh, this is going to go away at some point, and we're not going to see each other again, and our lives will be different. Or... Um, Another favorite um, work in that genre of mine is called Yokohama Kaidashi Kiko. Um, the super short summary is it's basically a very peaceful story set in Japan, but it's hundreds of years after the world was totally revi- ravaged by climate change and ecological disaster. Oh, wow. And so uh, most of the coastline oh, and all, wow. the c- yeah, all the cities are totally flooded and gone, and civilization is... Um, slowly declining that's kind of the theme of the show is there was never like a big apocalyptic uh final end to civilization it's just slowly slowly kind of like fading into the background as more and more things break down and can't be fixed and um uh, the main character is an immortal kind of like android person who watches um the humans around her kind of like grow up and grow old and watches the world sort of uh, fade away. It's like a very peaceful but like sad um, series. It's one of my faves. But it, Mushishi and that to me are like 
uh, kind of go hand in hand. If you like one, you'll like the other. Yeah, and um, I would say if if you're not sure whether or not you would like the show, um, which I'm personally offended, but I guess I understand. Uh, <laughs> I if you if you just are if you're willing to watch only one episode, watch the first episode of the second season. I think it's like uh, probably the best episode of the series um, in terms of atmosphere and just like getting you hooked on it. Um, I think it's a really good one. And just like getting you hooked on it. Um, I think it's a really good one. Right, do we have anything else? Right, do we have anything else? Um, Chris, are you alive? I'm I'm alive. I'm just okay. listening. Yeah. I, I, I was taking the back seat on this episode because uh, you guys are more involved with the series and the. Um, Did you get to watch much of it? I know you watched yeah, some I, of it. I got a couple of the episodes we talked about, um, and they, and they were fantastic. I mean, I really want to get into the series more. Um, I just have had such a busy week. Uh, it is great, in like. The fact that it's episodic uh, means you, you can take it as slow as you want, really. Yeah, exactly. And the and the episodes, like we said, are so uh, concise that yeah. you know you can spend twenty minutes. It's like I mean that's like you could you could realistically cram two or three episodes into a lunch break. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's pretty great. Yeah, yeah, and and it'll really put like I mean I don't know if I would cram a bunch into a lunch break maybe but. Right. It, it definitely puts you in a mood. Like, it puts you in a specific yeah. type of yeah. mood. Yeah, it's, it's more... Yeah, I was I was watching some Mushishi to kind of, like, try and catch up because I hadn't watched it in a while uh, for this week. And I was putting it on at night after work and class and all that shit. And <laughs> just about every time I fell asleep uh, very peacefully one or two episodes in. Yeah. Um, it's just that kind of show. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and one thing I got to say, too, like, back to my whole point about um, Urushibara being not a fucking loser, like, a lot of, um, like, or just, like, a child, like, a lot of mangaka are, <laughs> is um, you, you could definitely tell she, like, is a person who gets out of her room once in a while just by the attention to detail that she puts into the series. Um, yeah. Like, uh, I'm a huge like botany yeah. and ecology nerd, so one of the things that I find really fascinating about the show is, unlike a lot of anime where you're just like, oh yeah, they're walking in front of that same stock forest background that everybody uses. It's like every it just looks like fucking like a path in Naruto or some shit. There's like a dirt road and some trees and some bushes. Um, in this this series, like there's actual attention to botanical accuracy and detail in terms of like how she portrays like you could you could literally identify species of plants based on the drawings in the manga in, in the anime like based on flowers and leaves and so on that's another reason I recommend that season two episode one is because the the art for that is is just out of this world in terms of uh, the forest that they're in and and how detailed it is and just like the the way that uh, the, the lighting is and everything and the way that people act like it, it's all like so much more real than most anime is yeah and kind of kind of the flip side of that is like the human character designs are really really um, just like normal like a lot of the characters look the same um, yeah and it, and that's in drastic contrast yeah. to like uh, other anime where it's like everybody's got to have their fucking uh unique special hairstyle hair <laughs> that the artist has to draw the same every single special time hairstyle. yeah everybody has their special hairstyle and their special eye sparkle <laughs> and special outfit uh whereas in mushishi everybody's just fucking humans wearing the same <laughs> shit and they all pretty much look the same which is how humans uh, more or yeah, less Ginko's more. the weird one. He he's the guy with one eye and white hair and and you know green pupils or green green irises. Yeah, Ginko is like 
Ginkgo is like the kid in high school who's like, I'm going to wear uh, cosplay to school to be cool and stand out. I'm going to wear my yukata. Guys, I'm going to wear my yukata to school, except he's cosplaying <laughs> as a Western guy. Uh, yeah. But I think it kind of like relates to the themes of the show where uh, humans, including the main characters, are more or less kind of like interchangeable or they're not like the whole show itself is kind of biocentric you know it's not anthropocentric in the sense that the show isn't about the humans or about the mushi exclusively it's just kind of about the total picture painted by um you know the ecological interactions of all of them together um and so it's sort of like by not making the humans stand out you can kind of see them and situate them more easily within a total um, kind of ecological social perspective yeah it's kind of like every every episode you know like it, it almost seems repetitive but you know like the the plot is going to be there's going to be a problem caused by a mushi um which you know it's like okay well that's really formulaic but at the same time it's like you know that that world is infinite uh so it's just like a total mystery like what what is the problem uh why is it being caused and like why why is it uh, that the Mushi is causing it and how how is it fixed and uh, mm-hmm. I mean it, it's a lot like a medical drama but uh, like way more than that in a way you know yeah in a way it's like yeah. a medical spiritual drama <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, and it seems like a bland formula but when you consider yeah. that like shows <laughs> like uh, Jojo's Bizarre Adventure are basically built on the same one it's like where it's like instead of a mushi problem a week, it's a psychic punching, yelling ghosts uh, problem of the week. <laughs> um, in terms of stand powers, it's you know it's or it like makes sense why it works. <laughs> or like House in America, which is like uh, oh uh, someone has some normal symptoms. Oh wow, it's actually caused by a really strange, obscure disease that no one's heard of. But House knows what it is, and he has the cure. Uh huh. That has way more seasons. <laughs> Ginkgo is basically Dr. House. That has way more seasons. Ginkgo's Dr. House. Because, like, to the ordinary person in Mushishi, it must seem like he's solving fucking, uh, you know, med- medical mysteries which have, uh, you know, no no actual cause or anything. You know, he's, like, I bet most people probably think of Mushishi as, like, weird, you know, magic folk healers instead of uh, how they see themselves, which is, like, actually as doctors... Uh, prescribing like cures to uh, you know natural disease disease agents. Yeah, that's another part we didn't really mention is which is that um, the mushi are like supernatural sort of beings. I mean, they're natural in that they are real and they exist in the world, but they're supernatural in the sense that like uh, none of the characters other than Ginko and Adashino and the other mushishi like really understand that they exist Mm -hmm. and so all of the problems that are caused by mushi are either seen as uh diseases or curses or or just anything other than what they actually are because nobody really knows of the existence of mushi um which like uh i guess that's probably the strangest the like the hardest thing to believe that like all of these things happen all the time and they're caused by mushi and there's, like, these guys that walk around the world and, like, fix the problem, but, like, nobody seems to know that they exist. But, I mean, I can suspend my disbelief of that <laughs> to watch the rest of the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense unless you kind of think of it, if you try to, like, contextualize it a little more culturally, I guess. Because really, like, the root of what Mushi are is kind of, like, based in an animistic... Um, spirituality, you know, the idea that like, just physical natural objects are imbued with some sort of life force and intentionality and spirituality and people develop rituals and practices um, around them that are like meant to influence uh, outcomes in nature and so from that perspective it kind of makes sense as like Mushishi is like taking an animistic worldview and trying to sort of uh, naturalize it or like bring it into the realm of science in a sense like what if there was a science of you know supernatural animistic nature spirits 
and then who would be the practitioners of that science and what would they do? You know, because you could think like take it into the mod if Mushishi was like we fast forwarded it to Mushishi 2019, there would probably be people. You know, we talked about this earlier, but like uh, there'd be people trying to like patent industrial processes <laughs> that rely on Mushi to like produce <laughs> some like hella dank uh, spiritual liquids, or um, you know, there'd be people like genetically engineering themselves with Mushi, or that Mushi tobacco. <laughs> oh yeah, that sweet sweet. Take a puff of that sweet sweet Mushi tobacco. Legalized Mushi <laughs> tobacco, 2020. Quote unquote tobacco. Um, well, I, I think we, uh, we've we just about covered it. Uh, we're over two hours now, uh, mm-hmm. probably, you know, uh, exactly two hours with editing. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think I think we, we got everything in that we wanted to talk about. Um, thanks a lot, Reed, for joining us. I think we'll probably uh, call you again for future anime episodes. Hopefully uh, our connections will be better next time. I'm available as an independent contractor for any and all um, anime, ecology, and political um, requests. I can I can take any case. Well, most cases. We should. Uh, um, if, if you ever want to, I'd love to do an episode on um, that show I mentioned, Yokohama Kaidashi Kiko. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll have to check it out. Um, I've never even heard of that one, so I'm I'm pretty excited to get into it. It's pretty. Uh, it's pretty obscure, you know. Uh, <laughs> it hasn't been... Um, I don't think it's been officially ever released in English, so you have to, like, find the fan sub oh, wow. OVAs. Okay. They're on YouTube. And also the okay, manga cool. has been, like, oh, wow. okay. fan-translated, and it's online. So you can... Cool. Um, Reed, do you have anything you want to plug? Uh, I don't have anything to plug, really. Um, except, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody should get organized, do organizing shit, I don't know, or not. <laughs> I think last time we talked to you, you were working on uh, a mesh networking thing. Are you still working on that? Uh, I'm not working on that right now. The guy I was doing it with got a job in the Bay Area. Surprise, surprise. Ah, away, okay. So. Uh, <laughs> that sucks. Right now what I'm doing, ah. I've been working a lot with the DSA Libertarian Socialists Caucus. Um, so if you got any like DSA member listeners out there, they should all join and get involved so we can... Uh, basically stop the fucking sock them assholes from ruining everything and making everyone hate their lives uh, at the convention (laughs) coming up. (laughs) It's miserable. You'll have lots of fun if you do that. Yeah. All right. Uh, Well, thanks for coming on again, Reed. Um, uh, If you enjoyed this episode, uh, check out our others at uh, neighborsciencepodcast.com Uh... I've tried to extensively tag all the episodes so that if you're looking for any particular subject, you can find it on the site. Um, if you have any questions for us, you can email us at uh, neighborscience at protonmail.com. And I think one person thought that you needed a Proton Mail address to actually uh, send us email, but uh, you don't. Uh, you can just send it to our address and we'll, we'll be able to get it. Um, let's see what else. Uh, if, uh, if you like the show, give us a rating on iTunes. Uh, I would prefer five stars. Let's see. Uh, our Twitter account is at NeighborsciPod because of character limits. Uh, we have an Instagram, which I think hasn't been updated. Peter was taking care of that, but I think he's been too busy to do it. Uh, but that's neighbor at neighbor science on Instagram. Uh, our Facebook page is uh, facebook.com slash neighbor science. Um, and yeah, we're on if I mean, if you're listening to us on like a weird podcast app that you normally don't use, we're on everything. So if you normally use like Spotify or something, we're on that as well. Um, so you can find us there. And I think that's it. Anything else that you can think of, Chris? Uh, nothing really. That's that's that covers it. Uh, nothing really. Check out Chris's book, uh, Dream of the White Stag. Check out Chris's uh, book. Uh, that's a good thing to look at. <laughs> I'll be putting out a paperback probably in about a month. Uh, well, cool. Good thing to look at. I'll be putting out a paperback probably in about a month. Damn. Cool. I I will buy that because I like I would prefer reading books 
in physical form. I can't I can't do ebooks really. Fucking trads. Just kidding. I, I love paperbacks actually. <laughs> it's not that I'm trad. It's that uh, first of all, it's easier to read, and second of all, uh, it'll survive more than five years after the apocalypse. <laughs> Exactly. Pass it to your kids so they can also be traumatized. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, y'all. Um, thanks a lot. Have a good night.